Thank you for listening to The Actors Room. Please subscribe to the show in iTunes and leave comments and reviews. The show is also on Facebook, Twitter, Google Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. The website for the show is theactorsroom.libsyn.com. The site gives you access to all past episodes. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of The Actors Room. My name is Jeff Tarowski, and today we are going to continue talking about Woody Allen. I broke it up into two parts because I explained earlier that I think it's a good idea not to rush it sometimes, and uh, I made that call to go ahead and make it a two-part edition of Woody Allen. So today, Woody Allen, part two, we're going to touch upon his uh, beginnings into the business, how he got to where he is today. Uh, dabbling with uh, stand-up comedian work and also getting to write on television shows, so on and so forth. So I hope everyone out there is having a great day today. And here we go, Woody Allen, part two. Now, in an effort to meet girls, Woody went to a young Israel social club. Now, this club had acts on stage and Woody watched. When the last act was over, the MC got on stage and told the audience that there would be a special guest next week. Well, everyone waited and, you know, with bated breath to hear who they were going to be graced with the next week. And so did Alan. He waited with anticipation. Well, the MC said, Woody Allen will be performing for us next week. Now, this was a surprise to Woody as well. He was, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, he thought about it. And realized that he was intrigued with the notion. He knew that he had wit. He had comedy. He was a funny little guy. And I think that he did do a little bit of stage work with magic. And being funny with the magic. And felt if he worked on a monologue. That he would give it a try. And he did. He had a friend help him with the material. And he went up there the next week and killed it. The audience loved him and his act. It felt wonderful, he said. I was comfortable up there, and it was home. He was succeeding in leaving the nest. He would soon find himself performing and getting paid at the Elber stage. In the fall of 1953, Allen entered New York University. He went to college to please his parents. Once again, attending classes was not high on his priority list. There was one class that he did love. Movie production. So he would attend that one. But the temptation of New York City was too much. And he found himself walking around Times Square. And seeing a flick. Instead of attending classes. So once again continuing on that trend. He went from elementary school hating it. Then he went to middle school. Hated it. High school. Hated it. College. Why is he going? To please his parents. I mean. Every parent wants their kids to go on. And get a higher education. I mean, that is, that's just the way it goes. So Woody felt, okay, I'll go get my parents off my back. So he went to college and continued with that trend of just not caring. He didn't feel it necessary to study things that didn't find it, that weren't interesting for him. His grades were horrible. And New York University threatened to kick him out. 
I guess they had a conference with him and they tried to devise a plan for him to catch up. Uh, They talked about summer school, uh, doing whatever they had to do to make sure that he can continue on the college path. Now, I guess the teachers told him that he really wasn't college material and he should see a psychiatrist. This, This is one of the quotes that the teacher said, quote, it doesn't look good for you getting work. End of quote. <laughs> it doesn't look good for you getting work. Pretty much telling him, listen, you're going to have a rough time finding a job the way you are. Go get some help. Go talk to somebody. Because obviously, you do need help. <laughs> you need help. Woody. He needed a lot of help, I guess. He just wasn't a very good student. And teachers see that and they think to themselves, this kid's never going to make it. He can't even pass his classes. How is he going to go into a job interview? How is he going to get a job when he can't even attend class? You know, a, a future employer can look at that trend and think to themselves, how am I going to trust him to even show up at work? You know, so it's, it's consistency, it's character. And the teachers felt that because he didn't attend class, he was in a lot of trouble. Now, Woody explained to his teachers, look, I'm working already in the theater. You know, he was making $40 a week. And one of the teachers replied that maybe this was a good thing then. If he was around crazy people, he wouldn't stick out as much. (laughs) Hey, that's just the way Woody Allen was. Uh, Here you have the teachers telling him, you know, you're not getting anywhere. And he's like, listen, I already got a job. I make $40 a week. And he had a job already. That's what he cared about. And the teachers are like, well, maybe he's just a theater person. And that's exactly what he is. So he left college and continued performing at Elber Stage. And I want to point this out before I go any further. I found out that he was, uh, I don't know if he was suspended from school, but he was basically kicked out. And he was kicked out because of his bad grades. He even entered a night class in film production. But then he decided to take a writing class with Lajos Igris. Allen would say he learned a lot from him. He stayed with his parents for a few months after his college stint, and he had it in his mind that comedy would be his ticket. College proved a bust, but let's face it, he had a future in funny. In his personal life, he continued to be a loner, shy, and reserved, but would ever so often shed his shell and perform his saxophone with bands in the area. He wasn't a total recluse. He did enjoy conversing with strangers if he found the courage. Now, there was a distant relative to Woody that had some connections in show business. His name was Abe Burroughs. So when Woody decided to go ahead um, and dive into the entertainment field, he paid this relative, and I think it was his uncle, a visit. He knocked on his door, and he hardly knew this guy anyway. He just didn't know this guy. Big family. And I think that he was just one of those distant uncles. And he got up the courage to go over there and talk to him about the business. So he knocked on his door and he introduced himself. I'm Woody Allen. Well, actually, he probably introduced himself as, uh, what was his real name? Stuart? No, it was Allen Stuart Koningsberg. And explained to him his relation, so on and so forth. I'm not a crazy person. I really am related to you. Uh, And after a few awkward moments of their meeting... Woody presented Burroughs with a full page of jokes. Now, Woody remembers him looking bothered, the uncle, 
you know, I mean, I hope this kid doesn't expect too much from me, that sort of thing. And what if these jokes are just awful? What am I going to say to this guy? I mean, he's related to me. So Woody sat down at the kitchen table with his, with his aunt, I guess, and uh, Burroughs read the material in the next room. Moments later, the uncle entered the room laughing. Now that's funny, he said. Your comedy is original, and it's good. You know, it's stuff that you never think of. Very, very good. He loved it. Burroughs sent out letters recommending Woody to people like Sid Caesar and Phil Silvers. Burroughs also chewed his ear off with conversations about what his ultimate goal was. Alan told him that being a television writer would be great. No, said Burroughs, you don't want to do that. You want something more, something bigger, right? And Woody said TV writing would be fantastic. That would be fine. Now Burroughs told him that he should think bigger than that. So Woody said, fine, uh, I will shoot for the movie thing. I'll, I'll write for movies. And then Burroughs again was like, uh, no, nah, you don't want to do that. He's like, movie screenwriters, they have their dialogue changed all the time. You lose control. And your forgotten name in the film. But theater, ah, theater. That was the gem. He said that many movie screenwriters loved writing for the stage. So Alan immersed himself into reading plays and going to the theater. He read all the classics. He attended poetry readings on a regular basis. He was absorbing culture. And he attended poetry readings with a new friend. And her name was Harleen Rosen. She was at his side because they could talk to one another. And that she would end up being his first wife. Woody found small successes on stage. He was also still writing and ended up getting a manager. He was also still working at the job writing jokes every day for two years. Then on one Friday, the employer asked to see Woody. He was sorry to say, but he had to let Woody go. And he included an extra paycheck to say farewell. But Woody tried to interrupt him, but the employer wouldn't have it. Nah, you deserve it, Woody. You deserve that extra money. It's tough out there, but you're young and you'll land on your feet. Now, Woody looked up with a grin on his face and explained that he was actually going to quit soon anyway. He was offered a job at NBC as part of the writer's development program, and it was a juicy salary. What timing? He he got an offer at NBC, right when his other job was going under. So he really got lucky here. Um, He got a job at NBC. He was hired primarily for his type of comedy. The jokes he put on people's desks intrigued them. Here's a nice quote and compliment about Woody Allen's jokes. Quote, I was struck for lack of a better word by his directness. It was as if someone had decided to tell the truth through jokes. Not some philosophical inquiry into the essence of being, but extremely personal snippets of information. End of quote. And I agree wholeheartedly with that quote. He was 19 years old when he took this job at NBC. A teenager. And that is a very nice job. The department he was in wasn't very successful. But it was great experience for Woody. He worked his ass off and showed that he loved the work. So here you go. A direct distinction 
between his schooling when he was younger to the workforce. He actually cared what he was doing. He was passionate about it. It meant something to him. And he worked his fucking ass off to get where he is today. Then he headed out to Hollywood and wrote for the Colgate Comedy Hour. He even caught the attention of famous playwright Neil Simon and his brother. While stretching his career in California, he missed his fiancée, Harleen, and she was back in New York City. He would write her five letters a day. Now get this. Each letter had at least 25 pages. This guy was a fucking writer. Through and through. Now it got to the point he was describing the contents of his refrigerator because he was running out of things to say. And it was so cute. He was lonely. He missed his fiance, his girlfriend. And he would just pour his heart out on paper. And it got to the point where he just couldn't think of anything else to say. So he started describing what was in his refrigerator. Got some ketchup today, some mayo, uh, slices of bread, and some cheese. Though he was homesick, he was having the time of his life. He was hobnobbing and eating at the Brown Derby on a regular basis. He was making good money and doing something he enjoyed. Woody was writing alongside Neil Simon's brother, Danny, and the two of them were doing some really great work. Danny Simon loved Alan's jokes. He was original and it came from inside of him. Alan would go on to say that he learned a great deal from Danny. And here's his quote about this. This is from Alan. I learned everything about comedy writing from Danny Simon. End of quote. Writing sketches for television was a stepping stone for Woody Allen. One step at a time he went. He mastered the art of writing one-liners, then gags, now sketches, and this would hopefully lead to writing in the theater. Now, I love writing myself, and I was writing since I was a kid. I would write when I was a kid, I would write one-act plays. Uh, I would even just write out scenes that grabbed me, and I would think of something in my head, a story, or just a five-minute scene. And I'd write it down on a piece of paper, longhand. Um, so I enjoy writing. I kind of got away from it recently. But I would do treatments and skits, short films, and a few feature films. Um, and the toughest part of writing is getting started. You want to feel like you're going to go in the right direction. And Woody stressed this as well. There's a process to follow and ways to help your writing. Alan explained that to be a great skit writer, it helps to act out the scene. You get a feel for the flow and it really helps. I was writing a screenplay with my brother, God, who was probably five, six years ago. And we'd be talking about the script. We'd be writing things down. And it would actually help me to get up and act out the scene. Um, and it, it keeps you moving. And it really is a, a great idea to do that. Uh, being proactive, moving around, you know, creating energy. And it just makes sense to me. Now Woody moved back to New York and right away was writing stage productions for Tamament. And I think I said that wrong, but that's how it's spelled. Tamament. Tamament. And Tamament was a resort for young people to visit and meet new people. It was primarily attended by Jewish professionals, and Woody would write at this resort. Here are a few performers who graced the stage of this resort. Danny Kaye, Sid Caesar, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, and Neil Simon. Woody's material was so popular 
that the next year he got his own cabin to stay in with his wife for free. And after a bit of battling, he was also able to direct his own sketches. He was having his own way and he loved it. And this is important right here. This is the first time he starts directing. One of Woody's partners remarked on how he couldn't understand how someone with the name Woody was able to write such wonderful dialogue. A first name like George can write a great screenplay. Uh, A Maxwell can write a great screenplay. But Woody? He didn't get it. (laughs) Now, he would also comment how uh, he put down all his work, and this is Woody. He would put down all of his work on a typewriter. He loved working on a typewriter. And when you were standing next to him, while he was typing, it sounded like a buzzsaw. He was the fastest typist you would ever see. And he never stopped. He just kept going. Line by line, jokes would be pouring out of his fingers. It was incredible, this guy said. Beautiful and incredible. Woody would write material for Sid Caesar. This most definitely was a dream come true for Woody Allen. Because Sid Caesar was a mantra star at this time. And this was also one of Woody's idols. In 1960, Woody was in high demand and was making close to $1,700 a week for the Gary Moore show. But it wasn't long after this that he wanted to get out of television and grow. He was actually fired from the Gary Moore show after one year. He just didn't like the show. And he wasn't giving it that 100% like he was doing in the past. He wanted to branch out. He was growing faster than he thought. Woody was working on a monologue, getting his act together, literally, to take on stand-up comedy. Ladies and gentlemen, the very funny Mr. Woody Allen. Now, I'd say the most important thing that happened over the last year was that I got married for the second time. I, I had, well, my wife and I did not communicate with one another was, was the problem. She had a limited vocabulary is really what it was. She burnt her hand on the radiator and she couldn't think of the word ouch. (laughs) And I'll tell you how I met my second wife, which is really fascinating. I had read that in Life magazine that there was a sexual revolution going on on college campuses all over the country. And I re-registered at New York University to (laughs) check it out. Because I used to go to New York University years ago. I was a history of hygiene major there some time ago. And when I went to school, I was thrown out, and I got a job. My father had a grocery store on Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn, and he hired me to work for him. It was the first job I ever had working for my father, and I unionized the workers. We struck and drove him out of business, and he's always been touchy about it, you know? So Woody Allen spent most of the 1960s concentrating on his comedy act. I like his stand-up. It's crisp, it's clean, It's about real life, his real life. Uh, And it's funny, his life. And he makes it that way. He stands on stage with his feet planted firmly on the ground. He barely moves around with his act. These days, when I'm watching a stand-up comedian, and there's a few we really like. Bill Burr is fantastic. John Mulaney, just... I mean, these guys are just walking around the stage. You're kind of soaking it up. And Woody Allen, when he would do his stand-up, he didn't move around that much. He just stood in one place, and that was it. And he was building up a solid reputation 
being a stand-up comedian. Uh, he was there. It was just him. And you got to see this character. And he was an interesting guy. The, the stories he had uh, were rooted in truthness. And in doing so, he was gaining the confidence and the material to venture his sights into the big time. And that was feature films. He was going to write, direct, and act in his own movies. This is very rare, everyone. When you think about this, uh, you're usually just an actor. And you'll dabble in directing here and there. Uh, a good example is Mel Gibson, okay? Uh, an actor at first, and then he went into directing. And oh, just given some great films like Man Without a Face. If you've never seen The Man Without a Face, that was directed by Mel Gibson. Ah, oh, very underrated. Because we know him, Braveheart, things like that. Uh, so that's a good example. But I don't think Mel Gibson writes. He'll act, and he'll dabble with directing. Woody Allen, in his projects, most of them anyway, he will write them, direct them, act in them, and get almost everything together. This is one hell of a project for any artist. And Woody Allen is so rare. I think that's forgotten. And you could, you know, and I was talking to my brother about this yesterday, about his personal life, and, oh, it's a touchy subject, and I get that. But for me... The important thing about this show is highlighting these artists that are so talented and driven. That's another thing. They're so driven and focused to pull off stuff like this. Not only do you have to be talented, which he is, he's driven, he's focused, and he's intelligent. And he knows how to handle people. These are all very um, challenging traits and things that... You do. They have to be successful, not only in the in the films that he has done, but in the stage work he did as a stand-up comedian, the writing he did on the television shows, writing sketches and skits and one-act plays, all that stuff. A lot of experience that he has had. Uh, it all led up to this point, and it was here. At this point in his life, he decided he was ready to go ahead and give it his all. He was going to present... Not only his work, but himself to us. Some of his first films were called Played Again Sam, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, and Sleeper. Now, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex is very clever, man. It's great work, early work by Alan. Now, this is how I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to explain what I'm going to do for the rest of the episode. I will only be highlighting a handful of his films because I would rather spend more time on the films that stood out to me than lightly touch on several other films. So I think that's going to wait. It's going to play out a little better that way. Okay. Now, just to touch on Bananas in 1971, this is a strange film. Goofy comedy. It's all over the place. You see a young Sylvester Stallone playing a thud on the subway. He plays a thug. Uh, you know, for me, this film was a bit overrated, though. It, it, I just... Uh, it wasn't awful. It wasn't bad. It just wasn't my bag of comedy that Woody presented in Bananas. Uh, but here we go. 
talking about the important films to me that Woody Allen brought to the screen. Annie Hall, 1977. This one is widely considered to be Woody Allen's best film. The original cut to this movie was well over three hours. And Allen had so much editing to do and in the process realized that the chemistry between Diane and himself worked the best and would be the main point of the film. Woody would use split-screen directing, but not in the conventional sense. Instead of using movie magic in the editing process, he instead used two different sets on the stage and put a wall between them. So you have the sound stage, you got the stage, and he would have one set of like a bedroom, okay? And then he would have another set of a bathroom or something. And he would have a wall in between it. And this was done like it was in the theater, which I thought was very clever. Now, Diane Keaton's wardrobe made splashes in fashion when the movie came out, and Woody encouraged her to use her own clothing in the picture, and it worked. If you notice, Diane Keaton had that fashion sense back then in the uh, 70s where she wore a tie and and, like she dressed up like a guy sometimes it worked for her she looked cute I guess I mean I guess that sort of fashion works for some people and it broadened that within the fashion world Uh, more women were dressing up like Diane Keaton because of Annie Hall and she's such an unusual character I always thought Diane Keaton Isn't she? She's just a little... She seems so... um, I mean, as far as character goes, uh, very bubbly. Uh, I think that's the best way to describe her. Uh, She's got a lot to react off of uh, as an actor. You would love to have Diane Keaton as your screen partner because she's giving you so much because of her bubbly personality and things like that. Uh, She has... It's very engaging. Uh, Different and playful. And I believe some of the best acting in film history is done by Keaton in this movie. The cocaine scene was ad-libbed. Alan had trouble giving a title to this picture. Now, because Keaton was such a big part of it, he decided on using her name. And I didn't know this. I guess Hall is Diane Keaton's real last name. And Annie was a nickname that a lot of people called her. And uh, just a side note here is Jeff Goldblum had a cameo in this movie. Annie Hall did well at the Oscars in 1978. And Diane Keaton won Best Actress and the film won Best Picture. Just a big success for Woody Allen. Next up, Manhattan, 1979. The eighth film written and directed by Woody Allen. I really love this movie. It was a tribute to New York City. George Gershwin's music is used throughout, and it's wonderful. It was shot and filmed in black and white. And I love when directors choose to do this every now and then. I like the look of a black and white movie. Uh, Just the feel of it, I like. And it makes the pictures seem a little bit more crisp. The filming and everything. um, And very professional. Now, I wonder if I'm alone in this, um, this assessment. I don't know if there's a lot of people out there that actually prefer black and white to color. I don't think so. I think I'm in the minority here. I think most people um, would like to see a movie in color as opposed to black and white. Not me. I love black and white movies. Isn't that weird? What is it about that? I like the old feel of it. Um, It just looks better to me. 
It gives the movie a more classic feel, I think, and that's exactly what Woody Allen was trying to do with Manhattan. Now, it's the first film for Allen shot in widescreen as well. A young Mariel Hemingway appeared in Manhattan, like I said in the uh, former episode. Now, she is the granddaughter of legendary writer Ernest Hemingway. And of note is Meryl Streep appearing in this movie, and this is one of her first screen roles. And oh my God, is Meryl Streep just absolutely beautiful, stunning, gleaming off the screen, her long, beautiful hair. I mean, just my opinion, gorgeous, intoxicating. Okay, I'm going to move on. And uh, do you, (laughs) sorry, I just, I don't know about Meryl Streep when she was younger. Shut up, man. Yeah, hey. Uh, and do you know what else was intoxicating? The view of the Queensboro Bridge right at dawn in this movie. I guess it was filmed very early in the morning and Alan even got special permission to have the lights turned on. The bridge? Because I guess they turn it on at a specific time. Like they probably turned it on around, you know, six, seven o'clock. Well, they, I guess they filmed this, this scene. At like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. That early. And it took them a little while to kind of warm up. Do the scene a few times. And by the time uh, they were wrapping up. The sun was coming up. And it was right at dawn. Just a beautiful sight. The black and white. These are things. Um, as an artist. You look at. And it takes your breath away. These are things thought about. For a very long time. I'm sure Woody Allen. Doing this movie, writing it, thinking about it nonstop in his head, uh, had it in his mind that that very scene, how it was going to look, what the feel was going to be like. Every little detail, I'm sure, was worked out to the nth degree. And it showed. Very beautiful scene. I mean, this scene is probably, what, two minutes? And it probably took him weeks to put that together. The film Manhattan was nominated for two Oscars. Next up, The Purple Rose of Cairo, 1985. This movie jumps off the screen, literally. One of Woody's favorites. The double role that Jeff Daniels played was actually first given to Michael Keaton. I found this out, this little tidbit, did not know this. Michael Keaton was going to play Jeff Daniels' character. Now, you can even find footage of Keaton acting alongside Mia Farrow. He was hired. He was given the script, hired. Uh, They were filming. And Michael Keaton was doing scenes. And Woody felt that Keaton didn't look like an old-time movie star enough. And replaced him. But promised Michael Keaton that he would have him in a future project. Now, this was what year? This was, oh, 85? And it hasn't happened yet. And we're in 2018. Come on, Woody. Come on, Michael. Get together. Make a movie. I love both those guys. And uh, you know what, Woody Allen? I disagree with you. Although Jeff Daniels did a very nice job, and he did. Uh, Jeff Daniels is a very underrated actor, um, and he did very well in this role. But Michael Keaton, I think he looked like an old-time movie star. What the? Really? Uh, Some people are just really picky, aren't they? And Woody Allen is, and that's what makes him great. Uh, is that he is that picky about his work. He wasn't, he wasn't going to settle on anything. And if he had it in the back of his mind, and it was probably bothering the shit out of him too. Like he, he went ahead and hired Michael Keaton. And 
mean, that's a process you're going through, right? Hiring people, thinking you make the right choice, you get them in front of the camera, right? And after uh, the first couple of days, it's bothering you like, oh man, did I make the wrong decision on this guy? And I am sure that he uh, had a couple of sleepless nights thinking about how uh, he should get used to the fact that I, I hired Michael Keaton. I got to go through with this. And then after a week or two, it was bothering him so much. And he can't, you can't go on like that. Uh, you're not going to make a good movie if you felt you made the wrong decision. So he went ahead and fired. I don't want to say fired, but he replaced Michael Keaton with Jeff Daniels. And that sucks. <laughs> Poor Michael Keaton. And that's got to feel like, I mean, this guy fucking hired me. What the fuck? <laughs> well, maybe you shouldn't have hired me, man. I mean, thanks for nothing. You get all hyped up about doing this movie, right? And then the director's like, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I really don't want you anymore. Ooh, when you think about that, man, that's got to hurt. And then he promised them in the future they do a project together. And he still hasn't done it. Kind of a dickish move there, Woody. Kind of dickish. I'm going to move on now. And um, shame on Woody for doing that. But we're moving on. Strange. But this is a, it's a sort of a trend with Alan doing this. I guess this is not the first time he would do this. He would do it a few more times in the future with other films. And, and I have a note here, actually, that he wanted to even get rid of Sylvester Stallone in the Bananas movie that I pointed out. The very first movie I pointed out was, uh, was Bananas. And Sylvester Stallone was in it. A very small role, too. It wasn't a big role. Very small role. I mean, he has screen time of maybe 15 seconds. But even that small of a role, he felt that Sylvester Stallone wasn't tough-looking enough and wanted to get rid of him. But Stallone begged him to keep him on the picture, and he did. I guess when he thinks it's not working, it's not working, and he gets new actors. But, you know, I've been doing a bit of research lately on an actor, director, and writer uh, named Vincent Gallo recently. And if you don't know who Vincent Gallo is, um, he's an independent film guy, mostly. You will see him in other big movies, but he did a movie called Buffalo 66 a while ago. And another one called The Brown Bunny. They're very controversial, but I thought of him because he writes, directs, and will star in his movies from time to time. And thinking how hard it is to do that, and he's also like Woody Allen too, in this sense, is that he will hire actors and actresses on his movies. And I think a story is that he was always a big fan of Winona Ryder. Now, this is Vincent Gallo. Um, big fan. And he had the opportunity to hire her for one of his films. And she accepted. And they're doing the film. A week in, he fired her. I mean, here, when you think about this, <laughs> you got your idol working with you. You think that'd be enough. But no, it wasn't. It wasn't working for the film. Or maybe he wasn't getting along with her. Their chemistry wasn't good. And it didn't matter what her status was. If he felt that she wasn't right for the picture, she was gone. And he replaced her. So when you think about this, I guess it happens often. And I haven't talked that much about directors. I've done Stanley Kubrick. And now I'm doing Woody Allen. And maybe this is sort of a thing that directors do. I I'm guess I'm going to find this out. Now, my wife and daughters really loved The Purple Rose of Cairo. We all watched it together. And they were engaged with it. I have to admit that it was the first time I saw it too. And that was a week ago. I just never saw it. One of those movies I just didn't see, but I felt it was very charming. This film 
touched the life of Jeff Daniels on a very profound level. He adored his character in the film itself. He even started the Purple Rose Theater Company in Michigan. Very cool. And the ending is amazing. It's tragic, and I'm glad that Woody Allen didn't change it. I guess the studios begged him to make it a happy ending, but Allen had the control. Thank you. That's what made the movie great to me. And Allen has no problem with doing that. It was a tragic ending, and it worked, and that's what made the film great. Next, Hannah and Her Sisters, 1986. This film is centered around a female cast and takes place in New York City. Both critics and audiences smiled upon this one. The film was inspired by the work called Anna Karenina by Tolstoy. It will consist of several characters and several chapters. Michael Caine was cast as Elliot. Woody really wanted an American to play the role, and he offered it to Jack Nicholson, but Jack turned it down. Maureen O'Sullivan plays in the film as the mother, and she is also the real mother of Mia Farrow. Mia Farrow's apartment was used in the film, and Woody also presents work in the dialogue from E.E. Cummings. This film won an Academy Award for Best Screenplay, and also won for Best Supporting Actor, Michael Caine, and Best Supporting Actress, Diane Weist. I'm also going to play for you A small clip from the next film I'm going to talk about, Crimes and Misdemeanors, in 1989. Right here is Alan Alda. I love New York. I was born in that building right there, behind the the guy, uh, the statue there, behind the pedestal. I love New York. It's like like thousands of uh, straight lines just looking for a punchline, you know? And what makes New York such a funny place is that there's so much tension and pain and misery and craziness here. And they got that's the first part of comedy. But see, you got to get some distance from it. You know what I mean? That the main, the thing to remember about comedy is if it's if it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it's not funny. So you got to get back from the pain. You see what I mean? But the, the uh, like they said, they asked me up in uh, uh, at Harvard. A bunch of kids asked me, what, "What's comedy?" So I said, and then this this is part of what I'm trying to say about getting back from. They, I, I said, comedy is tragedy plus time. Tragedy plus time. See, when the night Lincoln was shot, you couldn't joke about it. You couldn't make a joke about that. You just couldn't do it. Now time has gone by, and now it's fair game. See what I mean? It's tragedy plus time. Okay, we're out. That's it? So fast? I shut up ten rolls on your first question. All right, I got I to gotta get to CBS anyway. Remember where we were. We'll start to- I love Alan Alta. Underrated actor. He was in MASH, the TV show. He's engaging, um, funny, funny guy, a little uh, awkward. He's kind of like a really tall guy, um, but a great actor. I love watching his work. Now, Crimes and Misdemeanors is the first big drama piece that Woody Allen did, and he cast Martin Landau in the film, and uh, Martin Landau was nominated for this movie, didn't win. Uh, He would eventually end up winning an Academy Award for his work in Ed Wood, uh, which was a really strange film, um, but he was a really fine actor. And um, Martin Landau was a very good friend of James Dean back in the 50s when they were uh, both unknown at the time. They were both studying acting in New York City, and I think that they bummed around together a lot. Uh, Martin Landau and James Dean were very good friends. Just wanted to note that real quick. Uh, Alan Alda 
is brilliant in this and um, he shines in this role. And the role was actually supposed to be a cameo at first. Uh, but Woody went on to rewrite uh, and edit the movie. He felt something was off. And in the process of doing that, uh, Alan Alda's character kept getting bigger and bigger. And it went from a cameo role to one of the biggest in the film. So that's interesting. Now, eyes have a lot to do with this film. Uh, Woody played around with the idea of having something optical in its title, but then ultimately decided against it. Now, Woody has said this about the film, quote, Crimes and misdemeanors is about people who don't see. They don't see themselves as others see them. They don't see the right and wrong situations. And that was a strong metaphor in the movie, end of quote. The movie was nominated for three Academy Awards. Uh, next up is Husbands and Wives in 1991, his 21st film. And it rode the wave of his breakup with longtime companion Mia Farrow. And the more I learn about their relationship, the Mia Farrow and Woody Allen relationship, the more I realize just how messed up it was and doing my research, realizing how strange and messed up and crazy Mia Farrow was. She grew up in a acting world. It, her parents were entertainers. And I don't think she got enough attention at home. She was. I think there was. A, there's a screw loose up there a little bit. Uh, it almost feels like, and this is just my opinion in the research I've done, that she wants to get Woody Allen in trouble. Um, it, I've come across articles and things like that where uh, there have been nannies and babysitters and, and people like that that have been around these two and their, their kids. And Mia Farrow will actually try to convince these babysitters and nannies that Woody Allen was a pedophile. And they're like, listen, I did not see anything. Stop trying to tell me what I didn't see. And she would try to convince him to tell other people that Woody Allen is a pedophile. A very fishy and conniving shit. And when I hear about stuff like that, um, and, and knowing maybe, just maybe, Woody Allen is definitely being falsely accused of this shit. I mean, there's one thing to be attracted to younger women, okay? Like 50-year-old guys being attracted to 20s, you know, being a a woman in her 20s. I think that's common. I think any 50-year-old would find a 24-year-old very attractive, right? I mean, he's not a pedophile. I don't think, I just, I know you get a feel for certain people. And maybe you think to yourself, oh, he looks like a creepy little dude. But that's because he's getting all these accusations thrown his way. All right? So... I hope to God that's true where he's not a pedophile because that shit really pisses me off. If there's one thing that really sticks under my craw is pedophiles. Hey, nothing worse, man. I, ah, those people belong to be put on an island. Okay. Uh, just put, because that is something you can't cure. You just can't put somebody in an institution and go, oh, we're going to cure you. There's a couple of pills you can pop every day and you'll be fine. You won't find little girls or little boys attractive anymore. I mean, that, that shit doesn't go away. I, I don't know. Stay away from the little people. All right? So, getting off base, I do that. But uh, it is does pertain to this episode. Okay? And diving into their relationship. It was messed up. And it, and it looks like Pharaoh had a lot of spite for Alan. And I wanted to point that out. Although they had been fighting in their personal lives, okay, 
They were able to finish this film. And Judy Davis's performance is amazing in here. And she was nominated for Best Actress. Alan's directing style was switched up in this one. He uses a handheld camera for effect and it works. And the best part of this movie is when Mia and Woody are ready to go out to eat with another couple. Okay, they're friends of theirs. They've known each other for a very long time. Well, the other couple tell Mia and Woody before they go out to eat that they've decided to split up. Their friends have decided to split up. And Mia Farrow, she loses it. She can't take it. The fact that they're splitting up. You know, how could this be? You guys get along fine. and it, I mean, it really affects her. And you could tell some great acting done by Mia Farrow in that scene. And uh, one of note, if you've never seen Husbands and Wives in 1991 movie, I recommend going and checking this movie out. Uh, and uh, just that performance alone. Uh, overall, Husbands and Wives is a raw film. You get to see an Allen film with swearing and explicit scenes, something very rare in his work. Next up that I want to talk about is Bullets Over Broadway, 1994, the 23rd film written and directed by Woody Allen, and it was a very big commercial success. The title of the film, Bullets Over Broadway, uh, comes from the name of a skit done by Sid Caesar from back in the day. As you remember, Allen wrote material for Sid in the 1950s, and he called him up for permission to use the name. Diane Wiest and Woody collaborate for the fifth and final time in this movie. She does her best work in Allen films, doesn't she? Diane Wiest. There's no doubt about it. And how about Jennifer Tilly? Damn! I mean, she came out of nowhere. And just knocked us on our ass in this film. I had always liked her. And she just did bad movies. And uh, she's good. And she really had a chance to shine. She does awesome. And I love her voice. Just love it. Underrated performance also by John Cusack. Bullets Over Broadway was nominated for seven Academy Awards. And once again, Diane Weist won for Best Supporting Actress. So two times. She was a winner. At the Academy Awards. Because she was in a Woody Allen film. And like I mentioned earlier. Woody Allen has a penchant. For creating strong female roles. In his films. And if you look at it. The best acting by actresses. I think. Are seen in his films. He likes giving and showing a strong female role in his movies. Something rare. And it shouldn't be that way. But it is. But props to Woody Allen for sort of not doing the cliche stuff. He wasn't a cliche guy. He did things his way. And the way he felt they would work out great for his films. Alright, here are a few other films I'm going to briefly mention here. Manhattan Murder Mystery. Broadway Danny Rose. Zelig, Sweet and Lowdown. Oh, Sweet and Lowdown, a fantastic movie. Great performances by Sean Penn and Samantha Morton. See it if you haven't seen it. Uh, another one, Midnight in Paris is good. Uh, Cafe Society, very impressed with this film. Love the chemistry between Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart. And Kristen Stewart has been an actress I've been very iffy about. But once again... There's Woody Allen just giving a Kristen Stewart a great role. And she was very good. 
Uh, and the last one I want to just briefly discuss is Radio Days. And Radio Days is my favorite Woody Allen movie. Uh, that's the one where you get a little glimpse of how he grew up in New York. Allen has been nominated for 24 Oscars. He's been nominated for 24 Oscars. Winning four. I guess I just want to, before I end this episode, I just want to give a few little tidbits about Woody Allen. Uh, He has worked with Mia Farrow 13 times. And it is common uh, for him to do that and to stick with actors he likes. It just makes sense. Uh, He writes his scripts on a typewriter. Uh, He does not own a computer. And he does not have an email account. And everything is pretty much managed by his assistants. Oh, I'm sorry. I said that wrong. He does have an email account, but it's run by his assistants. I, 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 sorry about that. My mistake. Uh, according to uh, Mia Farrow's biography, and her biography is called What Falls Away. Uh, and I want to point this out. Mia Farrow was once married to Frank Sinatra. Um, she had mentioned in her book that Frank Sinatra offered to have Alan legs broken when he was found to be having an affair with her adopted daughter. And the adopted daughter was Soon Yi. That was her name. Frank, now this is from Mia. Who knows if this is true? Just I wrote this down because I actually do think it's true. I wouldn't put past Mia to go ahead and call up Frank and ask him. No, no, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. I'm making mistakes. I apologize. No, no, she says that Frank Sinatra offered to have Alan's legs broken. I don't buy it. I think from what I get, when Frank and Mia Farrow broke up, okay, they really didn't talk to each other after that. So I find this pretty far-fetched that Frank would offer this. I don't think he gave a shit. Okay. He has more Academy Award nominations, 16 for writing, than anyone else. Woo! There it is, people. Woody Allen, a two-parter, good time, kind of a a strange episode uh, because of the controversy that Woody has had recently and in the past. Uh, Touched upon that. I might edit out a few things that I discussed earlier. There might be things that I take out because I got a little heated about some of the things that have been said about Woody. I admire his work very much, Woody Allen. Always have, ever since I was little. I love the feel of his films. And someone that I've sat down, watched his movies, and just been captivated by the work he gives. And it goes to show how talented he is. He puts a lot of time and effort into every single project. Uh, He takes a lot of time before a project to make sure everything's all set up correctly. Everything's being done the right way. He casts right, that sort of thing. And it shows in his work. Uh, He gives us some quality work. There's no doubt about it. And he is indeed a legend in the film industry. Uh, So thank you once again to everyone who's listening out there to the Actors Room. My name is Jeff Tarowski, and this is actually episode number 30. A very important episode because it's number 30. And I got to 30 episodes. Uh, The show has increased with his numbers a little bit this past week. They were really down the week before. It's weird how it goes in waves like that. I'll get people, maybe some new listeners... So if you're a new listener, uh, thanks for uh, giving my show a try. I hope you continue listening. Um, I try to get better and better. Uh, I try to slow down with my talking. I get kind of excited. I'm an excited talker. If I get kind of heated and excited about something, I start talking faster. 
and I apologize if it's kind of hard to understand me sometimes. And when I'm listening to myself in the uh, editing process, I realize that I do have a bit of an accent. I never thought I did. Everybody's got an accent, but you always think that yours is the normal one. And when I listen to my voice, I'm like, oh my God, I, I do certain things like my R's. They're really strange. My R's are strange. And I'm also like, I'm trying to correct it, but I shouldn't, man. That's the way I talk. Hey, we all have the way we talk, right? So I'm going to talk normal. It's like, I sound like an idiot. No, I mean, that's the way I talk. I'm sure everybody has recorded themselves at one point in time on those little tape recorder things. Like when you're a kid or in any situation in these days, we could just record ourselves from our phone and you listen to yourself. You're like, oh my God, I sound like that. We always sound a little different when we're taped, uh, but nobody is comfortable with things about them, uh, the way they look, the way they sound, the way they act. I mean, we're all very self-conscious about that sort of thing, but um, thank you for uh, listening to the show. Uh, newer listeners, like I said, please go back and listen to all the older ones. Uh, maybe there's an actor uh, that you um, would like to know more about. Uh, next week, I'm going to Go ahead and highlight Michael J. Fox. I went up to my attic last week. I found a book that I haven't read of his yet. I'm going to do that this week. I'm going to read one of his uh, autobiographies. And uh, if there is one actor that I truly love with all of my heart, it is Michael J. Fox. Um, somebody that um, when I think of Michael J. Fox, I think of my childhood. He seemed like such a fun person to be around. Um, just a really great guy. I'm looking forward to talking about him with you. I hope you tune in next week for Michael J. Fox. I don't usually do that. I usually chew on stuff, but I really, really know who I'm going to do next week. So I thought I'd go ahead and, uh, and uh, tell you. I uh, hope you're having a great day. Um, I hope you're having a great evening. If it's not day for you, it's evening. I hope you're having a great evening. Uh, it's a Saturday for me, and I am going to enjoy the rest of my weekend. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it all up, edit this thing out tonight, and probably get it out tomorrow morning. Have a great day, everyone. Put in that movie tonight, one that makes you feel happy or one that makes you feel sad. I guess it's all about how you feel. God bless you. Have a good one.